So as we've looked at, uh, even last week, renewal in a cultural state of confusion, specifically dealing with difficulty, and, and how we talked about secular and Christian stories of, of revival and renewal, and how there's kind of a difficulty um, in us addressing difficulty. So we look at things that are hard, and sometimes those of us that have tasted of the kingdom are like, well, is this really of God or not, and what do we do with it? And, and we, we, can, we can sometimes not see that the key to our freedom, true freedom, can be at the gate, the narrow gate of entering into the spacious place that God is making available. But there is sometimes difficulty as we approach the gate. And, and today what we want to do is say, what is the key practice as a people that are trying to position ourselves in a culture that we currently live in? What is the key practice that we need to go about being as a unique countercultural people? Uh, and then how do we go about doing that? And there's lots of spiritual practices or disciplines or whatever you call them. I, we like the term practices because disciplines sounds like it's going to be really torturous throughout the whole experience. And the reality is when you practice the way of Jesus, it's not horrible. It's actually amazing. And, and solitude is potentially the most countercultural practice that there is. And as we go into a realm of solitude, what we do is declare to ourselves, to our environments, and to everything that's forming us, uh, I am going to be formed in the presence of God, by God himself. Yeah. And it's really important that we get this as a community and as a people. Um, so that's the concept, and that's what we're looking at today. Um, there's, there's this quote by, by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs where he calls the people of God a creative minority. And what we want to do is, is start to look at this key spiritual practice that we need to emphasize in order to establish a counter-cultural creative minority of people in Pasadena, Los Angeles, and to the nations. And Sue's going to jump off with a little bit of introducing the concept and rhythm of solitude. So in talking about solitude, I thought it'd be helpful to understand it if we look at it in con kind of like um, contesting isolation, the difference between solitude and isolation, because they're both alone. When you're isolated, you're alone, and when you are pursuing solitude, you're also alone. But if I put it in like isolation, do I ever feel fully alive when I'm isolated? And usually, when do you isolate yourself? I don't know about you guys, but usually, for me, I isolate myself from this man, and I will not make eye contact with him. So that's my first clue that, oh, I'm isolating. And I remove myself from him and remove myself from community. And it's usually from a place of pain, a place of anxiety or fear, or frustration or distance. And it, in the end, I'm like, do I ever feel better when I isolate myself? No. So that's me in the natural. If we look at it scripturally isolate, you actually can go all the way back to Genesis. Who was isolated? Eve. When did the serpent come to her? When she was with Adam standing next to him and they're one walking in the garden? No. When they were with God in the cool of the day, walking through, looking at the different flowers and admiring things? No. The enemy came when she was alone, when she was 
by herself, that isolation. And then, so isolation, if you look at it, it's kind of what our culture does. Our culture demonstrates isolation, but Jesus demonstrated solitude. So then it put us on a whole pursuit, God, what is solitude? And why is it so flaming hard? Like, why is it so hard to get alone when we have our phones, we have our iPads, we have our books, we have children, we have coworkers, we have a house that's also an office, so there's people in and out and out every day. How do we pursue solitude, and really, what is that? Well, solitude, when I began to look at what it is, solitude builds communion with your father, and it actually builds you up to become a whole person. And I was like, God, what's so powerful about solitude? And he spoke this to me. He's like, solitude allows me to speak. It reminds my holy ones that they are still holy. Because the culture is not reminding you that you're holy. It's not reminding you that you're righteous, that you're worthy, that you're set apart, that you're called. It's reminding you you're not good enough. You haven't performed enough today. How are you doing at your job? How is your family doing? What else can you do, 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 do? Right? But solitude is a place of being. Being with your father and allowing him to remind you, you are holy. You are set apart. Do you want me to keep going? I have a whole lot. That was perfect. Perfect segue. (laughs) Dov Seedman says this, when you press the pause button on a machine, it stops. But when you press the pause button on a human being, they start. You start to reflect. You start to rethink your assumptions to reimagine what is possible and reconnect with your most deeply held beliefs. And Thomas Friedman uh, wrote, this, wrote this little excerpt called Thank You for Being Late. Um, I think he has a book on it, but I, I looked at an article in The Guardian. And he, he gave this great example where he would go out, he's saying, I'm trying to maximize my time. I often would have breakfast appointments in downtown. And uh, he'd, he'd be meeting people that are coming from all different parts of the city, and they'd often be 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes late. And what he started doing is, uh, instead of being frustrated, instead of being anything other than thankful, he started thanking his guests when they were late. He thanked them for the extra time that he had to simply pause and reflect. And instead of pulling out his phone or some other distraction, he would use the time as an invitation to just press pause. And what he said is, I needed to give myself and my guests permission to slow down. I needed permission to be alone with my thoughts without having to tweet about them, take a picture of them, or share them with anyone. It's no surprise to many people that feel fearful or unmoored these days, as he says, that the three largest forces on the planet, technology, globalization, and climate change, his opinion, three, but those are pretty large things, large challenges, are all accelerating at once. And he says, as a result, many aspects of our societies, workplaces, and geopolitics are being reshaped and need to be reimagined. When there is a shift in the pace of change in so many realms at once, as we're now experiencing, it is easy to get overwhelmed by it all. And in such a time as this, opting to pause and reflect rather than panic and withdraw, isolate, is a necessity. It's not a luxury or a distraction. It is a way to increase the odds that you'll better understand and engage productively with the world around you. In other words, this is a choice, solitude or isolation. 
a reflective encounter or anxious withdrawal. One more quote. Are you ready? Oh, you like my quotes? Okay. So Wayne Mueller, uh, in his book Sabbath, this is also, um, Friedman uses his, his uh, quote for this. He says, I am so busy. He observes that how often people say to him, I am so, so busy. And we say this to one another with no small degree of pride, he says, as if our exhaustion were some kind of trophy that we want to parade around like some kind of little mark of our goodness and accomplishment. But to be available to our friends and family, to whiz through our obligations without time for a single mindful breath, this has become a model of a successful life. And so we have this choice. Final quote for now. Leon Weisstedler says this, technologists want us to think that patience and pausing became virtues only because in the past we had no choice. We had to wait longer for things. And so now that we have made waiting technologically obsolete, their attitude is, who needs patience anymore? But the ancients, that means those who've come before us, that often seem seemingly knew more than we give them credit for, they believe that patience wasn't just the absence of speed, but that it was the space for reflection and thought, which is why I'd rather learn to pause. Now, um, I think we can learn a little bit about pausing from Jesus. But the other thing we want to do is the goal here is not just to get you and I to pause. There is more to solitude than just stopping. It's just that solitude can't start until you stop. And Jesus, uh, there's a key word. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to jump around because this is not a full teaching today. This is kind of throwing darts at you. And, and then we're going to just inspire you to maybe give solitude a try. And, and we'll, make, we'll make, hopefully, clean it up next week. <laughs> so in Luke chapter 3, uh, this, is what, this is what it says. During the high priesthood of, of uh, Caiaphas... The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. I just want to read that just for the term, in the wilderness. That term, in the wilderness, is, is simply a Greek word that has multiple connotations. The Greek word is eremos, which means wilderness, desolate place, desert, or open space. So almost any time in the, especially Luke's gospel, but all the other gospels as well, when you see wilderness, desolate place, desert, and otherwise, it's often that word, one word. In other words... If you're studying someone that wrote their, their little gospel in English, and you see the same word repeated over and over, you're like, okay, I'm going to pay attention to that. But here's the thing. Often in the gospels, especially um, in this case with Jesus and the term that's used for wilderness, it's the same term used for different things. So, for instance, when you hear a demoniac that's in the desert place, it's the same word as the wilderness. When Jesus went to be alone with the Lord up on a mountain, it's often talking about the same word, the, the wilderness. Now, the other thing that I love about this term is that the wilderness is actually described as a lonely place. So in the gospel of Jesus, he starts his ministry being led by the Spirit to the lonely place of the wilderness. And he continues to go back to recharge into the lonely place. Let me prove it to you. <laughs> 
John even says, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So John the Baptist was known as the man out in the lonely place, preparing the way of the Lord. If you flip over to chapter 4, um, verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Spirit, actually don't turn to chapter 4 yet, we're still in chapter 3. Um, no, no, we'll go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, full of the Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Same thing, into the lonely place, he leads him. And what happens there? 40 days, he depletes himself of all human energy and capacity and strength so that he could be strengthened by the Spirit of God so that he could withstand the most intense temptation that probably a human being had ever encountered. What are we supposed to learn from that? A lot. But at the moment, just remember in your brain, this happened in a lonely place. And he's immediately then after that encounter with the the enemy, the Spirit of the Lord leads him then into ministry, and we know that whole thing where he goes into the synagogue and reads, opens the scroll from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And, and what happens then at the end, we're still in Luke chapter 4, if you go over to verse 42, and, and what, what you see is that he's, he's doing a lot of ministry, he's healing people, uh, it says he heals many, all those who had any sick and various diseases were brought, brought to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons even came out crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Here's the key. And when it was day, meaning this was literally the next day, he needed to depart and he went into a desolate place. Same word, Aramos. He went into the lonely place. Did he go back to the same wilderness that he went out to for 40 days? Probably not. But the theme that the gospel writer wants us to get is... He didn't just go out there once, have an encounter with the enemy, and then never return. Because what he did in the wilderness was not duel with the devil. What he did in the lonely place was empty himself and get filled so that the enemy's lies had no effect. That's what happened in the lonely place. True solitude. And as he needed to do ministry, he needed to be refilled, recalibrated, recentered connect with his father, and he needed to do that in the lonely place, the wilderness, the desolate place, the desert. And then it says in the end of chapter 5, verse 16, let's start at verse 15, but now even more, the report about him, this is after cleansing lepers, doing more work, calling his first disciples, now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities, but, but, he would withdraw to the lonely place and pray. Isn't that amazing? And so, like I said, there's other, there's other aspects. Even just in Luke, in 8.29, it talks about the unclean spirit that's in the desert place. And, and as well as the feeding of the 5,000. That happens out in, again, the lonely place. And then in, finally, in, in uh, chapter 15, verse 4, it talks about sheep. We mentioned the beautiful sheep of the shire that the hobbits beckon from the Lord into the green pastures through the narrow gate last week, if you were here. But uh, in chapter 15, it, uh, it says this, and this is the last verse. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, open country translated, Aramos, lonely place, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So Jesus continues this theme of the lonely place being the place that you get your strength 
to approach ministry, to survive ministry, to exist in the midst of the culture. He disciplines himself to get away from the chaos and distraction, climbing a mountain that would often take hours just to get to that place. And then he describes the way of the sheep, you and I, with the good shepherd. Saying that when you wander, I will go out into that lonely place and I'll find you. And the theme of the sheep is always the shepherd's voice. And one of the things that gets calibrated in our lives every time we go into that lonely, solitary place is the voice of the good shepherd. If no other reason for you to pursue the practice of solitude, it's to hear the voice. And so I want to I tie this back into one other um, article that was uh, from the New York Times. And the, the big idea of that article, why you should find time to be alone with yourself, essentially says we have some evidence to show that valuing solitude, this is Michaela Marini Higgs, uh, valuing solitude doesn't really hurt your social life. Many people are worried about that. Maybe you are. But it doesn't hurt your social life. In fact, it might actually add to it, she says, pointing out that because solitude, now realize that this is a, a secular writer that has no biblical concept of solitude. They're simply talking about the concept that a, a typical person would understand of it. Because solitude helps us regulate our emotions, it, can't have a, it, can, have a, it can have a calming effect that prepares us to better engage with others. They did a series of studies, and the fourth study specifically showed that, that they found that solitude could lead to relaxation and reduced stress when individuals actively choose to be alone. Why is that significant? Because when you're in solitude, but you didn't choose it, what is that? That's what we call solitary confinement, and that's where prisoners go to lose their minds. There's a big difference. When you are in solitude with your heavenly Father by choice, and it is, the choice is yours, you can choose it when it happened to be given to you, because someone was late, or it can be given to you because you went and pursued it, usually because you went and pursued it. It's a choice that we have the freedom to receive as a beautiful, beautiful gift. Now, here's, here's three points that I think they make a really good um, point of in this article. They say, why it's hard to spend time alone, and Suzanne and Liz are going to get into getting comfortable in our solitude. But the main idea is, is essentially, they say, people are absolutely scared of their own thoughts. Have, have you ever been trying to process something, and you pick up a distraction in order to numb the thing that you're thinking about? Never. It can be much more subtle. Sometimes it's, if you know that you're really wrestling, like if you've got a loved one that's, that's you know, struggling with an illness or something and it's consuming you, you may literally bring people into your life because you need a distraction. I'm not talking about that. They need to come in, be around you, give you good thoughts, pray over you, strengthen you, eat with you, cook for you, love you. That's what community is for, for sure. I'm talking about that thing where it's like, you know, I've got this, nagging sense of something in my spirit 
like it's like I'm dealing with my own self-worth. I'm dealing with unforgiveness. I'm dealing with whatever. Bitterness, frustration, blah, blah, blah. And when I'm alone with my thoughts, I have to go to something. It's my iPad. It's my phone. It's the TV. It's Netflix. It's my kids. It's my work. It's whatever it is. And when we do that, we're simply doing what the culture does. Here's the amazing thing about this, this one study from the University of Virginia. They, they gave people the opportunity to sit quietly. They're doing a study. You can sit quietly in the room, alone with your own thoughts. Or you can choose to be shocked. Get a shock, and it'll be all done. You can go home. <laughs> a quarter of the women and two-thirds of the men chose to subject themselves to an electric shock rather than do nothing and spend time alone with their thoughts. So, um, number one, what's hard about spending time alone? Your own brain. Number two, why it's good to spend time alone. Here's what happens when you spend time alone, and, and maybe we'll, we'll pick up on this as we, as we um, close out. It establishes your identity. How does it establish your identity? Well, I like it when, when secular people give kind of biblical concepts, terminology. This is what they call it. They say, cultivating the sense of being alone and making the choice to be alone can help you to develop who you are, which is your identity, your sense of self, and what your true interests are. Now, the world will paint the picture because it's all about your interests and your passions and yourself, and, and obviously interests and passions and so forth are wonderful. But the reality is our identity is first and foremost rooted in who we are as sons and daughters of King Jesus. That's important because then when we get wrapped in a circle of I'm worthless and I don't have self, like self-worth of any kind that I'm wrestling with in some way, shape, and form, the, the, the ammunition we have is that's not what my identity is based on. And my, my worth is actually based on that my father gave me worth declared it over me apart from what I did to deserve it. It was a gift. And in the same way, solitude can be a gift if you so choose to step into it. And number three, how do you actually do it? I, I enjoy how, how they kind of described or suggested doing solitude. And this is, this is literally, they had to get biblical to get into the concept of how to do solitude. And they say this, in a twist on the golden rule, they say, Treat yourself as you would treat others. And, and what's, what's interesting about that is I don't necessarily think that's wrong. Treat yourself as you would treat others if you'd treat others well. But the focus that they have, they can't even go to the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What's the focus of the golden rule? It's external. You do to other people because you have something to give. You're blessed, so be a blessing. That's the concept. That's the Jewish mindset of the golden rule. They flipped it in our individualistic society of self, and it was almost like our readers aren't going to relate to that unless we make it about self. So they go, here's the golden rule. Treat yourself as you would treat others. Give a little bit of self-love. There's nothing wrong with self-love. Some of you in here need some self-love. I see your, you, you moms. You need a lot of self-love. And the best thing fathers can do sometimes is go out of your way for a little extra self-love, whether that's extra time alone in the coffee shop, because sometimes when we were in the throes of intensity, it was, I just want to get away from you. And I'm like, here, babe, go away. I love you. <laughs> Some of you need the self-love where you actually need a friend, and you need a moment, and the, and the, the loving and the self-love is actually 
connecting. It's, that's the beauty of, of, what, of what we're talking about because it, it takes you from the place of where your heart needs to actually be strengthened. And God meets you in that and your community meets you in that, your family meets you in that. But I was amazed at how they had to twist the golden rule to figure out how to do something with the concept of solitude. And ultimately, the doctor talking about it says this, take the opportunity to say, this is the time where I can give something to myself. And just endorse that in this moment. You are your first choice. That's how she closes. And that's very much the end of the article. And here's the thing. Sometimes you do. Some of you do not take care of yourselves. And you need to. And you need to start eliminating the stuff that is actually killing you. But the, the difference is culture says you need to survive and you need to survive by taking care of yourself. The kingdom says you're a part of this world-changing family that is already blessed and there's been a payment made that has already declared who you are. And you need to do nothing but receive that. And the way you receive that is emptying of yourself so that I can replace your emptiness with the fullness. And when you receive the fullness of what Jesus purchased, then you discover true freedom, true passions, true identity, and everything around you that you thought you had to defend becomes indefensible. And you can live like you're already dead. That's the resurrected life that Christians Walk around society as dead people walking. We've already given of our lives because he gave our, his life for us. And therefore, we're not intimidated. We don't hold back. We're generous. And we know how to set boundaries because we're secure in who he says we are. Huge difference. Same craving, same narrative, different gospel, different culture. We are a countercultural creative minority. Now, to close this, this part, because we've already gone longer than I thought, we're, we're going to talk about this wonderful man named Henry Nowen um, probably next week, because I'm already realizing we're, we're out of, really out of time. And I want to bring these ladies up. Uh, he gives this amazing definition that we're going to get into. Um, I don't know if they'll mention him a little bit or not. But I love how he, he says that in this reality of a choice, there's the concept that we're all alone, meaning that every single one of us are unique because no one else on the planet in eternity, past, present, or future, is going to be exactly like you, whether you're a twin or not. You are unique. And in that uniqueness, you're therefore alone. That's not a negative term in definition of alone. That's just reality. We're each alone. Are we okay with that? Okay. Now, the choice is, how do we, what do we do with that aloneness? And the two choices are essentially this. We can operate in our aloneness through woundedness, which is when we then live in loneliness. Or, we can operate in solitude. And in solitude, we're not operating in woundedness. We're operating in giftedness because we see solitude as a gift. That is the ultimate issue. Are we wounded? Yes, we have wounds. But are you going to receive the reality that you are alone as a wound? 
or are you going to receive it as a gift? The only way you can receive it as a gift is through him who was wounded on your behalf. That's the beauty of this practice. Now, I want to give a couple um, practical ways that I want to invite us in this week to practice solitude. And, uh, and then we'll bring these ladies up. Um, and, and, here, and here they are. As you do this practice, I want you to set the environment and then pray. But I want you to do it intentionally by choice. Setting the environment can be as simple as pressing pause and going and locking the door somewhere. Maybe it's your bathroom. It's the only door in my house that locks. But there's only one bathroom, so it might not be the best place. You might want to go in a different room that doesn't lock, but no one's going to be in there. Just So press pause. Get distractions out. Get alone as possible. You might need to put some effort into getting alone. You might need to go climb a mountain, ride a bike, whatever it needs to do. Then check your emotions. When you come in to encounter the Lord, you're always carrying something. I'm sad. I'm distracted. I'm actually really excited because I just got this raise at work or a promotion or I just was on the phone with a friend and I'm like on a high. Come real with the Lord, with your emotions. Check them. Let him engage with you with wherever you're at. Lord, I'm, I'm coming to you today. I'm sad. Okay, you're sad. Sit in that with me. And let him be present in your sadness. And then, and, and then pray. But there's three kinds of prayer in solitude that I would encourage us to start to practice. Emptying prayer, listening prayer, and praying the word. And do it in this order, and I'll tell you why, as you start to practice this. First, empty, emptying prayer, or some would call it casting cares. What is that? That's the reality that we live in the most anxious society in human history. And as you encounter your emotions, you might have some anxieties you need to put at the foot of the cross. So go ahead and do that. That's called emptying prayer. I'm giving you this, Jesus. You know what? I'm just going through my emotions, how I'm doing, and you know what? I need to give you this. 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 And, and you're just literally dumping on Jesus, and that's completely okay. Some of you need the license to do some, some dumping. Take a dump on Jesus. That was inappropriate. Okay. That wasn't in my notes. Sorry. So emptying prayer. Some of you might turn it into dumping prayer. That's okay. Don't stay in that like that's the point of the prayer. Because if you leave in a dumping prayer, you will feel like a dump. You need to follow that up with listening prayer. And that's when you simply posture your heart to receive his voice. My sheep hear my voice, the stranger's voice, they will not follow. Why? Because they position themselves with the good shepherd. In solitude, you are allowing the good shepherd to speak. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to write an entire novel. You should write something down. I often find that when I journal down something of what the Lord put on my heart, whether it was simply, I, you need to know today, Christian, my son, that I love you. I write it down because when I write it down, I am saying to my spirit that, that while this is really simple, I believe that the Lord is specifically highlighting this today to my spirit. And when I when I write it down, there's a measure of agreement that takes place in the spirit. So write it down, even if it's on your phone, whatever, whatever it is, and listen. Then move into praying the word. Um, and, and praying the word is something where you're not just reading scripture and you are not studying. You probably want to start in the Psalms, and what you want to do is slowly grow through a scripture 
that is going to bring life to your bones or wherever you're at. And you pause and sit in that word. Why? Because that is also the voice that we anchor on. And sometimes when you're not listening, or even when you are, the word is what continues to be the thing that you stand on, that anchors you, and that gets you moving somewhere. So pray the word. And that's it. Set the environment and pray. But do it by choice, do it intentionally, and do it that way. And you start the practice, it will shift your life. So with that, um, could we have these ladies come up? Liz and Suzanne. And uh, you want to just give a taste of why we're having Liz and Suzanne do this and how the course kind of came about? So some of you who are introverts right now might be like, this is amazing. I love to be alone. I love to be alone with God. I actually, some of these people around me are really loud and kind of bothering me, and that's exciting for me. And then others who are extroverts might be like, well, what about community? How do we pursue solitude, and how does it relate to community? And Liz is going to be helping lead a course within our community that's starting this week that's really beginning to tap into this space of solitude. Because, for example, like, I'm an extrovert. I love to spend time with God, but why is it hard? Like, Christian said, solitude is hard. And we're just processing, like, why is that hard? Because if you're facing something hard in life, you probably don't want to think about it. You don't really want to feel the painful emotion. Because as humans, we're not designed to, like, run into pain. You're designed to not encounter pain because it's painful. And I remember I was like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not talking about it. I'm not moving. Oh, this one. We were supposed to be... um, I'll make it short. I know you're cognizant. But uh, we're before here, we were in Chicago, and we were like, Lord, we'll move anywhere. We'll go anywhere. Where do you want us to go? And we had all these words about France. And I didn't like France. I thought people were rude. I'd be like, parlez-vous français. They'd say, what do you want? I'm like, nothing, I guess, anyway. Um, just, this was Paris, and I was a 20-year-old, so you can imagine the dynamic. But I went to my friend who was going on a silent solitude retreat who heard the Lord very well. I was like, Kellen, when you go on this retreat, there's this question. And I haven't really wanted to talk to God about it because I'm not going to move my whole family. And so I'm not going there with him and pursuing solitude. But can you do it for me? She's like, yeah, 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 of course. I'll ask the Lord and I'll tell you what he says. So she went away for three days, spent time with the Lord, came back, and she's like, oh, yeah, I got something. I was like, yes. Okay, because it's too painful for me to hear by myself. I'm kind of scared, which revealed it tapped into a greater thing, like, do I really know God? Do I really think he had my best in mind, or was I afraid like he wasn't going to protect me? And she's like, yeah, so God said one thing. I was like, what was it? She's like, he told me he wants to talk to you. (laughs) That's not funny. That's not even funny, Kellen. She's like, that's all he said. He said he wants to talk to you. And so then it was like I went through this, fine, God, I'll talk to you. I'll go to solitude. We'll spend time one-on-one. But it was in that space where the Father revealed his heart for me. And I gave him my yes, but we're not in France. We're not living there. And yet then he gave me his heart for the nation in return. So it was this beautiful thing. But often solitude is the place that like you have to push through. You have to push out the different things that can hinder us getting into that space to meet with our Father and reveal his nature and then be the vulnerable person. Because it's hard to be vulnerable. But I was even talking with Krista, I'm like, we're vulnerable people. We wouldn't wear clothes. You are, it's not that we choose, but we are vulnerable. We wear clothes. We live in homes. No one else in God's creation. Animals don't do that. 
So it's like by nature we're vulnerable and solitude's a vulnerable place, but you get to be free to fail with your father in that space. So they're gonna kind of begin to process what does that look like and how can we work that out in community? Because you can grow a whole lot by yourself. When does it come to fruition? When it meets community. That's where your buttons are gonna get pushed. That's where the things that you've learned in solitude are gonna come to pass is when you're with others. So we're gonna kind of tap into how, the how of how we do that. Liz. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm really excited because this Thursday we're starting our contemplative class. And um, so last year I read a quote by Henry Nouwen and it really had an impact on me. And it said, solitude is the furnace of transformation. And I was at a place where um, most of my friends are all married, they're moms of young children. So suddenly, boom, they're gone. So I was thinking, wow, I have a lot of time. Here I am, no one to talk to because they're all with their children. And so I was, I, that's literally where it started for me. I just thought, I don't have anybody to hang out with anymore. Um, and then I read that quote and it was so amazing because and then I was hearing all these things, and people say, in your singleness, that's when you're supposed to pursue emotional health. Spend as much time as you can on yourself, like get healthy. So I thought, okay, that's the advice that people before who have gone before are giving me, I'm gonna take that. And then solitude is the furnace for transformation, I'm gonna go after it. Um, yeah, so that's how it started for me. And I have made it more intentional over 2019, but it's really hard because when she mentions um, her friend going on a silent retreat, that sounds so painful. Like, I would never want to be anywhere by myself. I would not put myself in an isolated position because that just seems like, oh, I'd be alone and I'd be so bored out of my mind. But I've like grown a lot since that thought. Um, but I was talking with this lady here, and she has Grow, she's definitely much further in her journey of solitude than I am. So I was just asking her and she was sharing with me and now I'm gonna ask some questions um, so we can hear from her because she's so wise and going to share, unlock her brain here. So Suzanne, um, I have my questions. What does your journey of solitude, how has it looked so far? Small question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see. So I think it is really, a you guys did such a great job covering this topic. I feel like I'm just going to repeat things you've already said, but from a personal, from a personal level. Um, it's like the arc of my whole life. It's a redemptive arc that God is doing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm a heart type, my personality. So in my family of origin, my parents are great people. In fact, my mother won an award last night for being citizen of the year. <gasps> wow. Um, in, in her county. Great people, externally oriented, they do amazing things. They've mm -hmm. always had a roof over my head, protection, provision, mm -hmm. no abuse, no alcoholism, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. But just, um, I came, I realized the word a couple of years ago, I ran across this video on YouTube about childhood emotional neglect. And I thought, that's what happened. Like, there's nothing really wrong mm -hmm. in my family of origin, but no one really pursued my heart. Mm -hmm. No one ever asked me, how are you doing? What are you feeling? No one would notice. Are you sad? Are you happy? What's going on inside your thoughts and your feelings? Yeah. So I just felt very lonely always from yeah. birth. And like, um, I'm just not seen. I'm not known. I don't feel loved. I don't feel interested in. I don't feel... Yeah. 
And so I would just have my emotions to myself. I remember crying in my room a lot or running away from home and like sitting in a treehouse or under a bush and just crying and no one would come after me. So this is like the loneliness you're talking about where I learned to isolate. Um, You know, clinical words for that is I developed an avoidant attachment style or a dismissive attachment style. Like that's fine, I don't need anybody. I can just deal with it on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But then I think some good things came out of that. It propelled me to becoming a therapist. Mm -hmm. Many therapists have this profile. I'm going to dig deep into the psychological life of other people, you know, (laughs) and feel this deep connection with people at work in a very professional sense. And yet God had to grow me into like real connection. Um, So I think first what he had to do in me is like two of my favorite verses were God sets the lonely in families. And um, even though a mother will forsake her child, God will never forsake you. So those were two of my favorite. And so, first of all, he had to build in me like a community through becoming a Christian. When I was eight years old, I just felt compelled to go to church. My family did not go to church. I just wanted to go to church. They would drop me off there. Um, So I feel like God was just calling me out of my family into his family. So I developed a a relationship with God early on. And also, I, I really put an emphasis on friendships. And so I always had a lot of friends and really made my friends, my family, more than my family. Um, so he had to really build me into a community through a youth group and through this amazing fellowship that I had in college. I was never had a period of time like you where I was ever alone or lived alone because I went straight from my family into college where I always had roommates straight into marriage mm-hmm. and never lived alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so first he had to build connection and a feeling of him being my father and putting me in a family with Christian brothers and sisters. And I think solitude is not only a skill or a practice that you can do, it's also a capacity that you have. It's out of emotional maturity. I don't think you can really be good at solitude unless you're good at connection because they really go hand in hand. Otherwise, you are just isolating, and it's more like a defensive maneuver because relationships are too hard and painful and messy. But the better you are at connection, the better you can be at solitude. So I think first he built me into his family, and then later in life, I I started to be interested in solitude. I joined a contemplative um, prayer group for a couple years, and then with them, uh, we would study scripture on our own and then come together and share it with other people. It was amazing how everyone would get something slightly different, and yet there was a unifying theme that's like the Spirit is working through this in everybody, but everybody had a slightly different experience. And then through that group, also experienced my first silent retreat. And then later went on silent retreat, you know, by myself. And then later went, um, went to Jerusalem for a whole month by myself and basically had a month where I didn't really talk to anybody. I would, I would maybe like chat to somebody I'm meeting in a store or something, but really was by myself for a whole month on purpose. And then last year, I blocked out a month of my life. Uh, when my roommate was gone, I decided I'm going to make this a month all I do is go to work and go to church, and then I'm going to say no to everything else. And, and just usually you say, oh, sorry, I can't make it to that baby shower or that birthday party or that whatever because I'm busy or I'm going to be out of town. But there always has to be like an excuse why you can't come <laughs> because somebody said to me early on, like, the way you have friends is you just try to say yes. To, when people invite you, you try to say yes. The person who says no too much, like, people are going to stop inviting you. So it was always this idea, like, I, I always want to say yes as much as possible to everybody. But in that month of solitude, it's like, sorry, I'm just going to have to say no to everything that comes along. Yeah. 
so I, I had to miss baby showers and, and women's gatherings and friends wanted to have a game night, movie night. So I just said, no, no reason. I'm just going to be at home alone. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, but like amazing things can happen yeah. when you're alone. So um, what has happened? Well, do you want me to well, keep going? Or did you, you intentionally pursue solitude as a practice or you just found yourself kind of in these? I did pursue it on the silent retreats and then just on these two months okay. where I decided to be by myself. Okay. But then um, I read this book on the Enneagram because I love the Enneagram. Christopher yes. Heritz describes uh, spiritual practices for the different types, and they are stillness, silence, and solitude. You can do one, two, or all three of them together in any combination. But the one for my type was solitude. And so the, the difference between, um, you know, like voluntarily seeking that state. And so heart types tend to really look to people for connection, for yeah. affirmation, for attention, for yes. appreciation, for meaning. There's a lot of things. Like some people use people to feel safe or to feel secure or to feel belonging or to feel popular or to not feel alone or to not feel scared or to make sure that you, uh, to, for all different kind of reasons, people use other people. But in choosing solitude, you're deciding not to get any of that from anybody. Mm -hmm. So then... Like you said, you're just super aware of your own thoughts. I think a lot about food. Um, I think a lot about all the things I have to do. Yeah. I'm restless, like trying to just deny, like going to those go-to distractions. And then I think a lot about people and relationships I've had with people and who I've lost and who's hurt me and like sad, wounded things. <laughs> but, but in the solitude, it's almost like putting this bubble around yourself where it's almost like an individual therapy session with God. Mm. Um, Caroline Leaf is a Christian neuroscientist. Yes. She talks about like freaking out in the love zone where you can say anything, feel anything, bring anything, emptying prayer to God, who's the best listener, counselor, therapist, comforter, advice giver, yeah. guidance giver yeah. in the world. Um, and so I would just have all these thoughts and feelings mm -hmm. instead of denying them yeah. or escaping them, just have them, but in the presence of God. So the paradox is, like, we are always alone, existentially. Like, the pain in my family of origin is no one really knows me, no one understands me. Um, but partly that's just true of everyone. No one really knows you, no one really understands you at that full, deep level. Yeah. Uh, but, but the other truth was that there's never been a moment in my life that I've ever been alone. God has always been with me. And, yeah. I've, and the thing about solitude is, like, instead of avoiding yourself you start to love yourself. Like, I love yeah. myself, I accept myself, I validate my own feelings, I can comfort. Me and God are always the two people that I'm with at any given moment, yeah. me and God. Like, that'll never, yeah. ever, no one can ever take that away. Yes. So um, one of the triumph of my solitude, after I read this book, I'm going to practice solitude because I'm going on this trip with my family. So I was raised first two years of my life in Ecuador because my parents were in the Peace Corps. They were taking me and my brother back for a 50-year reunion. Now, um, I was going to be with them for 12 days. Oh, and <laughs> so um, I used to kind of limit or not be able to be around my mom for more than three days without getting into some kind of a fight with her. Yeah. Probably out of this hurt, like you never pay attention to me. It would like come out in an angry way or something. Um, so I went on a 12-day trip to Ecuador, and I had this bubble of solitude. I was practicing me and God, me and God. So when she, you know, I, this is a shocking fact. I went 12 days with three members of my family, and none of them ever asked me one 
personal question about myself. So I used to be hurt and angry about that. Like, no one, like, just this feeling no one cares about me, no one's interested. Um, but I just said, you know, it's me and God. And so I would say to God, see what I have to live with, see what I deal with, see nobody's even interested in me. So I was just, like, lamenting to God, see how it is for me. But then there was this, this great comfort in yeah. that. I just felt, and then I wasn't seeking that from my parents. They just yeah. can't give it. They're really well-intentioned people. I think in their childhood, no one ever paid attention to their emotions. Yeah. And so it's just a generational transmission that they couldn't give me what they did not get. Yeah. And so I wasn't expecting that from them. I just almost like turned a corner where I almost felt sorry for them or compassion for them or like, I'm going to love them anyway, even though they don't give me what I need. But like, it actually increased my honor and my love for my parents rather than thinking, what, you deprive me, you hurt me, you wound me. It's like, okay, I feel sad for you and I'm going to try to love you um, because God is filling me up in my solitude. I'm not reacting to them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's made me like less offendable. It's almost like a filter, like how you, in a smoggy place, people wear these, these masks to filter the air or you filter your water to get the toxins. It's like almost like this spiritual filter that like something can't poison you or yeah. affect you or hurt you as much because you have this filter of God around you. And so I just don't get as, as wounded or as reactive. My mom at the end of that trip, she goes, this was the best trip ever. I'm under, and I, I knew what she was saying is, I can't believe we went more than three days without fighting. <laughs> like, it was a victory. Like, I did not fight with my mom. It was amazing. Um, so how did you get comfortable with it? Yeah, so um, the benefits, right? So the challenges were, it's hard to say no to people. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, the fear of missing out, like I'm missing out on all these social things that are happening mm -hmm. when I'm saying no. Mm -hmm. um, and you're with your own thoughts and feelings, and that can be painful. Mm -hmm. But the benefits, like just the comfort I felt, um, the resilience I felt, like the buffer around me, I felt less hurtable. Um, I don't know, I feel like I have my own, I don't know, it's like I'm in my own private little comfort zone that I can carry with me wherever I go. So it doesn't only mean like physically isolating, you can also be in solitude even around people, mm. inside. It can be like yeah. an inner place that you're just dwelling in safety and perfect peace and understanding with Jesus, even yeah. in the middle of a crowd. Yeah. yeah. So what is, are there any tips that you would leave us for if we decided that we wanted to pursue solitude? Do you have any encouragement or advice you would give us? I would say you definitely have to like be intentional and schedule it because if I don't put a, like an X through like that Saturday or that evening, I'm not available, I will just fill it up. Uh -huh. um, and then also when you are being alone, it's like not just physically being alone, but then trying not to do the distractions and just trying to emote or, or empty in prayer, like with being very aware of your thoughts and not just in this introspective, navel-gazing way, but like giving them to the Lord uh -huh. and being very present with yourself and with the Lord and enjoying his company, enjoying your own company. Uh -huh. I think that's the difference between loneliness, which is really an epidemic today, yeah. and solitude, is that you enjoy your own company. Like in, in Jerusalem, I never got lonely or bored with myself. I only missed people back home. Yeah. I really miss this church and people that love me, but I never got tired of being with myself and with God. So it, it's kind of, it's like this tapping into this infinite reservoir somehow. Yeah. Oh, 
Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So amazing. I'm gonna um, instead of the worship team coming up, unless you really want to, I was gonna have. Where's James? James could just put some um, background music on. And why don't we all stand? And Sue's gonna just lead us in a, a prayer to uh, to let this go deep and and to do a really brief little exercise together. Thank you guys. I love Suzanne what you finished on that you loved being with yourself. Henry Nowen or Nguyen, I'm not sure how you say it. Hopefully we'll go much more into this next week, as Christian said. Um, he said this, Once solitude of time and space has become a solitude of the heart, we will never want to leave. And I felt like that's what Suzanne has tapped into. That space where she found the truest essence of oneness with God in that solitude. And so now we're going to actually take a moment of silence. And in this moment, I want you to just ask yourself, what parts of Suzanne's story or her insight, what parts did you identify with? And on a scale of one to 10, how well do you do solitude? And then in one word, what do you think your biggest challenge is in getting comfortable in solitude? now I'm going to push you a little bit out of your comfort zone and into the communal piece where the growth and the transformation that happens in the furnace of solitude is outworked in community and held accountable in community. So I want you to actually now turn to your neighbor and share. Share, what is that part of Suzanne's story that you identify with? In one word, what is the challenge? And then to pray over each other. It can be very simple. Just what, like, I agree with you that you will find this new rhythm of solitude. And just bless what God's doing in their heart. James is going to continue to play background music but just turn to your neighbor and share. And we're just gonna push into this for a moment. Yeah, it doesn't need to be a long prayer. Just share the word and just say, I partner with you in that. It doesn't need the whole background story. What's the biggest challenge? My own fear? Time? Whatever it is. You don't have to get super personal with this. And then just say, I partner with you in that. 
All right, and we're going to close with one final. If you're comfortable, like, you can lay hands on the shoulder of the person next to you. Um, and if otherwise, just put your hands before you. And I just want to close this. I know you don't want to close. You can keep talking after we close in prayer. Jesus, thank you that as a community, we are pursuing solitude. Thank you that you are releasing grace for us to be countercultural by intentionally choosing to allow you to be God in the midst of what the world has turned into loneliness. We declare the gift of solitude will be the way of life and the way of Jesus that we practice and pursue as individuals, but as a community. We bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can keep interacting.